Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the latest developments in tax technology. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording from Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to be joined by John McDonald. John is a Managing Director in PwC's Quantitative Solutions and Technologies practice. Before going back to school to get a degree in computer engineering at the ripe age of 46, John was an international tax partner for Baker and McKinsey. John is the author of over 100 articles on international taxation, co-authored a treatise called U.S. Corporations Doing Business Abroad, had a stint with the Ministry of Finance for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, and has recently published his second fiction novel, Forgotten Titles, under the pseudonym Emma Wong. John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So, John, we have worked together a long time, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. This will be the first of a series of podcasts with you, as I'm excited to learn more about your career journey, including why you chose computer engineering and your experience in Afghanistan. But today, I want to focus on the role of technology in international tax. But before we begin, I'd like to ask you about your side job as a novelist. And I appreciate that this is your first and only stop on your book publicity campaign. So I completed your first novel, The Dig. And so for those that are uh, able to view on YouTube, I actually have the book here and you can see the, the title. Um, and I, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed the novel. I mean, just a, a fantastic fiction novel. But my biggest question is, why the pseudonym Emma Wong? Yeah, it's uh, so uh, I, I have to say, I write the books with my wife. Uh, and, uh, so I kind of write them and then she reads them, tells me it's crap and, you know, I rewrite them, you know? Um, and, uh, so we knew we wanted to have some sort of pseudonym. She writes professionally as well as I do. So we knew we wanted to have some sort of pseudonym that was an amalgamation of the both of us and also was distinct from our professional writing. Um, my wife's maiden name is Wong and, uh, it, it just so happened that I, I had written the book before we chose the the pseudonym and Emma Wong, if you read the book, is a character. very important character very in the book. Important. She's both the narrator and and a character in the book. And so we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool since she's the narrator to make her, you know, the author, right? So she's the author and the narrator, and we just thought that that was a cool idea. And uh, we picked that up in our subsequent book, Forgotten Titles, which just dropped on Amazon uh, a couple of weeks ago. With yeah, we got to do the plug, and we've got the the, the plug here as well with uh, the Forgotten Titles. Yeah, I don't um, have yeah. it in paperback yet, but it is on available on Amazon. Um, and uh, we we just decided kind of our shtick is going to be to have Emma be a character in each one of the novels. So you'll see she plays a prominent role in Forgotten Titles too. But so. it's not necessarily written. Is it written from her perspective? No, like no, the no, dig, no, she's no, just, she's no, a character. no, 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 no. We want to explore different different techniques, Doug. So. I, I I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. I, <laughs> I love the creativity. Well, well, John, I'm really looking forward to, to to reading that. When will that be out on paperback or can I order it on paperback? Uh, no, you can't order it yet. I, I There's additional formatting you have to do, so I have to get around to it. So probably August. Okay. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Well, outstanding. 
Well, so John, let's move on to the topic at hand because we I could talk about your book for the entire time, but I think our listeners are, are more of the international tax than the fiction type. But Probably. But, yeah. but, but who knows? <laughs> right. So you obviously feel very passionately about the role of technology and tax in society as a whole, given that you stepped away as an international yeah. tax attorney at 46. Why did you quit your job as a traditional tax attorney to 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 take on this new endeavor? Yeah. So um, yeah, everybody thinks I'm insane, but uh, no, I had I had some logical reasons for it. So I, I I've always been interested in technology. Um, I mean, even when my parents bought an Apple II, there was an Apple II Plus or an Apple IIe back in the '70s, right? And so oh, yeah. I was coding on you know an old Apple II and. Uh, I always wanted to do something with computers and I had always planned to go back to, you know, school almost as a lark, you know, just something to do. Um, but I originally had planned to do that more like in my late fifties, perhaps, uh, what accelerated those plans a little bit, uh, are a couple of changes in the marketplace that kind of screamed out to me that the, you know, the industry is kind of, you know, ready for some significant disruption. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if I can lay some statistics on you, I know it's not a math class, but uh, if I can drop some statistics. We're, we're not afraid of numbers here. Okay, John. all right, yeah, we're cool. not afraid so, of numbers. Uh, and these are just, you know, I'm not an economist, so that's my disclaimer, but I pulled some of this from uh, Federal Reserve websites and so forth. But, but your, uh, your, your degree is in accounting, is that right? So yeah, your undergrad, un undergrad in my accounting. My first undergrad. Your first undergrad. Right. I, I only have one. Right. Uh, my degree as well is in accounting, and then right. I think we both went to law school. So exactly. it's numbers, but I'm not an economist either, but, but keep going. Yeah, so um, so I'm going to lay two statistics on you and then dive a little bit deeper. So the um, the first statistics is that if you measure from the year 2000 to the year 2020, um, and you were to compute the average inflation rate uh, year over year, like a compound aggregate growth rate, it it, it hovers around two percent. It's a little bit under two percent, according to the Federal Bank of uh, uh, Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Now, legal services, legal services depends on what statistic you're looking at. Um, and I couldn't get a statistic on accounting services, but legal services, um, you know, have averaged over 3% uh, year over year from 2000 to 2020. Now, that may not seem all that dramatic of a difference, uh, but um, I'm going to give you some additional information uh, that will indicate how, what a disparity is being created there. Um, so... You know, within that two percent number that I gave you, there's a lot of different products. It's like every single cons every single product or service you know in the United States. Sure. And uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of things in that statistic, like the price of an automobile. Uh, price of an automobile has only increased 0.16 percent every year, year over year, from 2000 to 2020. And the kicker is, is that in 2020, you're getting a hell of a lot more car for your money, right? You're getting right. more stuff. It's a better car. You can't say the same thing about professional services, right? I mean, if you spent you know fifty thousand dollars in two thousand for you know whether it's legal services, accounting services, medical services, whatever, you're not necessarily getting more service in twenty twenty than you got in two thousand. Yet you've had this dramatic ramp up in uh, in cost. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that that 3% number that I gave you, that includes everyone from criminal defense attorneys and trust, you know, small town trust and estates attorneys to, you know, the larger, larger service providers. And so, you know, those, those criminal defense attorneys and trust and estates attorneys are really driving down the average. So the, the actual inflation, 
uh, for you know larger providers is actually higher, mm -hmm. right? So um, you know what I you know, and, and that's just that's that's no one's fault. It's just a, a, a consequence of the fact that professional services, high high touch professional services, are not inherently scalable. They're very difficult to scale, and um, you know, and and and, and as a result. Uh, you know, you got a lot of clients who are kind of choking on the rates, right? Sure. And and um, you have to come to, you know, one of two conclusions, which is either, you know, professional services are somehow immune uh, from the laws of economics, which is not a theory I subscribe to, or, um, you know, you got to do something about it. And the only thing that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that you can do about it is to turn to technology. Now, in the tax base specifically, there are a couple of uh, you know a couple of other changes that have gone on, and these are much more recent. Um, specifically, you know the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, uh, coupled with some of the base erosion, uh, anti-base erosion initiatives around the world, has made it such that you know we have to put in a lot more hours to accomplish the same tasks now than we did. In 2016, I mean, it's just it's harder. It's more complex. It's more interrelated. Absolutely. And 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 the other thing that and and I might be wrong about this, but this was just this is just what I saw coming back in like 20, 2017. Mm -hmm. I left I left my firm in uh, 2018. But what I saw, and it's just my opinion. I might be wrong, but what I saw is that you know I think I. My prediction is is that for the rest of my career, my working career, you know, there's just going to be a much greater emphasis on the modeling as opposed to the structuring. Right. Uh, be, simply, be, simply because, simply because um, the rules are so interconnected. Beat 163J, guilty. You know, coupled with all the foreign provisions, that um, you can't just sit there successfully on the back of an envelope and kind of conclude that you're accomplishing the client's objectives. Anything that you do basically is going to need to be anything that you do that's going to be significant and material is going to have to be modeled. And again, you know, what's going to improve that? Well, it's going to be technology. Technology can help us, you know, model better, right? So. Um, yeah, for, ab absolutely. Yeah. And just uh, to add a little bit to that, and we've spent a lot of time over the, the mm. course of the cross-border tax talks talking about yeah. the complexity of these various yeah. provisions. And just you're absolutely right, John. One of these common themes as we go through whatever area we might be talking yeah. about is, well, you got to model it out. And I think your point that really resonates with me is that pre-TCJA, a lot of the, the concepts that we employed as we were thinking about strategic planning as part of a deal or a business model change, whatever the case may be, you're right, kind of to the point, it was intuitive. Or yeah. for those of us that had done this for 20 years, to the point you could do it on the back of the envelope. And now, given the interrelatedness of these various provisions, I mean, it's just like almost every day as we're working with clients, we'll think we've got a particular answer. You run it through the model. And it and goes the wrong way. And there's some downstream consequence yeah. that we hadn't thought of. And right. it's just like, well, okay, we need to, to, to rethink that. It's just way more complicated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it. it's like, uh, you know, you go back 10 years, you know, you might not know the exact dollar impact of a particular transaction, but you knew directionally for sure which way it was going to head up or down, right? 
And now that's not necessarily true. <laughs> you know, right. you, you know, you, you not only do you not know the exact dollar number, but you don't necessarily know it directionally either until you until you model it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now that may change, but I, you know, at least I think for the rest of my working life, I think that's that's what we're going to be living with. So. Yeah, and and one of the other kind of comments I'll make to that is I think for, as U.S. professionals, technicians, we we've really seen that. Uh, as I'm looking about what's taking place outside the U.S., as we think about the progression of what I'm referring to as BEPS 2.0, so as Pillar One, potential reallocation of profits, and then you know Pillar Two, which is sort of these the, the minimum tax concepts. Uh, I'm not sure that some of our non-U.S. colleagues appreciate the complexity inherent with something similar to, let's say, a guilty regime or the equivalence of a beat or, or something similar to a, a beat type of law. And so as I've been talking to a number of our you know, colleagues and, and clients outside the U.S., you know, I think that's a trend that is, is here in the U.S., but I see it coming down the pike for outside the U.S. too because these calculations are just incredibly complicated. And the other piece that I would add is like we're already seeing a lot of complexity in just how you apply layers, for example, of the anti-hybrid rules and just how all these rules and various territories rules kind of stack on top of each other just continues to make things even more even more complicated that just requires modeling to do anything. Well, and this is where, you know, yes, it's modeling, but it's also using new technology to make that modeling more efficient because, you know, as we were discussing uh, earlier, I, I you know the, the the clients don't necessarily care how many hours it takes you to accomplish a particular result. They just care about the result, and that's that's what they should focus on, right? Um, but the fact that something is more complicated for you, right, doesn't necessarily mean they want to pay you more for it. You know, absolutely. And so, Fair point. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's you know, that's the way the world works. And so, um, you know, so the I think the real challenge. Uh, that everybody's going to have uh, wherever they are in the tax service industry is, you know, uh, how can we use technological tools in order to, uh, you know, do the same amount of work with less human time on the timesheet? I mean, that's what right. we got to do. That's the touchstone. Yeah, the, a great example of that, um, that where things got significantly more complicated, go back to the TCJA, was the completion of Form 5471, Right, which is the informational requirement for a, a controlled foreign corporation when you have a, a U.S. shareholder. Now, historically, and it still says inform, informational return, right? Because historically, the CFC's income pre-TCJA didn't directly impact taxable income. Of course, if you had subpart F, now, right? Mm -hmm. But now with, and then everything else was kind of informational, the, the P&L, the balance sheet, the Schedule J with earnings and profits, well, well, now with the TCJA and guilty, that is no longer the case. And uh, I, I think certainly within the industry, we've seen, well, there's all this additional complexity, potential risk, it now impacts taxable income. But fundamentally, the cost for, for, for some of those services you know, arguably hasn't risen incommensurately with the level of complexity and a time it takes to actually do those. And I, I think that's a, a really good example. Yeah. yeah. So. Let's talk about then the opportunities in the profession for yeah. technology to change things. And we'll come back to the quantitative stuff because obviously I'm very interested in that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. It's one of the reasons that, that you're on board here. But 
maybe before we go there, there's a number of other tasks and things that we can think about as you know international tax professionals and ways to kind of streamline and use technology. And so maybe I'd start with research, right? Yeah. We all spend a lot of time doing research and there's a whole bunch of different, um, obviously, research engines and, and tools for, for practitioners to use. But you know, how can technology start to improve things insofar as how we're actually doing research as, uh, as tax advisors? Yeah, I think whether it's tax preparation where, you know, the, the, the software has kind of followed. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, technology was first introduced um, around things that are on a tax form is because basically the algorithms are there for you. The IRS developed them for you right there on paper. But, right. but you know, you, you have an algorithm of effectively with the tax form. And so that's a great starting point if you're going to code up some sort of solution. Uh, I think all that low-hanging fruit, the same with research, right? Anything that, I wouldn't exactly call it low-hanging fruit, but I mean, any any... Anything that is easy to get has got been gotten, <laughs> all right? And so now we have to move to things that are a little bit more difficult to get. And so, like, one thing I, I think I can talk about uh, on the research front would be just, like, legislative history research. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, um, you know, first of all, it's not all online. I always, whenever I would ask an associate to research legislative history, they say it's all online. It's not all online, Okay. Um, uh, and moreover, there's some stuff that you just have to go to the books for, but a lot of, especially younger people and uh, not to date ourselves here, but, uh, a lot of younger people, I mean, they, they don't know how to use the books and they won't use the books. Right. So I think that, uh, and that, and that means that a lot of, you know, stuff that can actually help your client, I think, you know, uh, isn't getting gotten or isn't getting gotten as efficiently. Right. And so. Um, you know, I think there are opportunities to uh, automate uh, legislative history research in a way that I don't think has been done, you know, before. Uh, and that, that, that is something that takes a, a tremendous amount of time. It's not something the clients see, right? They, sure. don't, they, don't, they don't see you, you know, going back to the 1939 internal revenue. Some of these code provisions, some of them date back to 1866. Right. I mean, you got some of the excise tax provisions or whatever. But I mean, a lot of the, you know, uh, these provisions, you know, there were there were prototypes back in 1939 Internal Revenue Code, and some of the legislative history you need is back in 1939 Internal Revenue Code. And, you know, that's, again, a, a thing that the client just expects you to get, but uh, it's not particularly efficient or quick to get it, you know, and so. And, and so when you know. talk about automation, you're not talking about just digitizing these old legislative history. Well, a lot you? of it is digitized already. Right. Uh, it's, 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 uh, um, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, so. There, there used to be this book. It's out of print now, uh, but it's it was called the Statement of Cumulative Changes. All right, and it's a phenomenally useful book if you ever use do legislative history research. And uh, what you could do is just look up a code section as it existed back. Now it's been out of print since I think 1986. I might be wrong. Okay. If you can find one on eBay, buy it. Okay. All right. Uh, but um, you know, if you found the the current code section, it would take you all. It would trace it all the way back. So all okay. the times it had been redesignated, and tell you the public law number, da 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 da, and it would take you all the way back, right? Like even to the pre nineteen thirty nine law, right? Um, well. The, there's nothing like that that I'm aware of online, and those books are out of print. 
Um, and, you know, yeah, you can get on various legal services and at the bottom there'll be some public law numbers and stuff, but those only go back so far. I mean, to my knowledge, they usually only go back to the 1954 code and some of them don't even do that. Um, so, and they, and they don't organize the information like the statement of cumulative changes did, right? So, you know, something that would allow you to, for example, you know, type in, you know, section 351A or something and then boom, you know, you're getting all the legislative history. You just click on a, on the link and you get the PDF and it's just there. You know, you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours getting it all together before you begin reading it. Mm -hmm. It's just there. Right. And you can spend your time doing what humans are uniquely able to do and computers right now can't do, which is apply human reason and cognition to text. You right. know, computers can read text, but they can't really understand it, you right. know? They can do pattern matching, but they cannot mimic human cognition. And make judgments, and, and, no. and we're going to get to that because right. there, there is an element. Am I jumping ahead? No, that's all right. All right. There is an element of uh, um, of the probability analysis that we talk yeah. about in opinions that, that that we'll get to here in a few minutes. But so yeah, so I'm with you. The automation of research, and we've seen obviously some of the various research engines make make significant strides. But I, I think you're right that there's still significant opportunities. Whether it's the taxpayer themselves, these you know the, those that do research, or the, the the professional services firms, certainly to to streamline that. So maybe the second thing I want to talk about is education and continuous learning. And yeah. so I think all of the professional services firms have looked for ways to try to automate and streamline that. We, you know, frankly, John, since you've been gone, the volume of information that we get now and have to process just with these regulations you know, that were issued as part of the TCJA. I mean, it was just completely overwhelming. I don't even know how to describe it. And the listeners here know, because we've been through most of that, but it was just the last few years. So what are your thoughts on how technology can play a role in, in that process? A huge one. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, again, what's what's your standard? What are you trying to achieve? And the, what you're trying to achieve here is not so much reducing hours on the timesheet. What you're trying to achieve here is, People have to learn stuff and they have to learn it faster because there's more stuff coming at them. And it's not just the US, it's every time you know somebody enacts uh, something in a, a really important jurisdiction like the Netherlands, for example, you gotta know, as a US tax lawyer, you gotta know, right? You can't be completely ignorant of what goes on in the Netherlands, right? Um, so you, you just need the ability to, um, to get up to speed extraordinarily quickly and um, Again, there are models for this. You know, we're not the first people to think of this, right? There's a lot of people in a lot of different areas that are taking advantage of a lot of the uh, learning in the neuroscience area about learning how people learn, right? And then um, uh, taking advantage of those techniques in order to uh, help people uh, learn better and learn faster. I'll give you one simple example, which is from neuroscience, which is the so-called testing effect, which they've known for you know, a hundred years, but, but, uh, the whole notion that, uh, the neural pathways and we're getting into specifics here, but the neural pathways that you use to passively receive information are not the same neural pathways that you use to retrieve information. Okay. So, and, and the way you get better, the way you get faster at, at, at getting and, and retrieving information is to practice those neural pathways to like, like, it's almost like, uh, 
burning a record, right? Or burning a CD. The, the, the more times you practice, like, why do you get better when you practice it? Because you're, you're, you're exercising right. those neural pathways and they're kind of getting burned more deeply. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, using the testing effect, um, allows you to practice both pathways. So instead of just sitting and there, what pass- is the testing effect? Well, the testing effect, they, and they've known this for, I, I, I think a hundred years, uh, is just, they've, they've noticed that, um, if, if you just have, uh, you give a lecture and then, you, you know, you, you go a day later or something and try and ascertain and assess what those people retain from that lecture, it's going to be X, whatever X is, mm-hmm. okay, it doesn't matter, it's X, okay? Mm-hmm. Compare that to a situation where they're not just sitting in a lecture, but they're actually uh, doing like ungraded tests, right, where they have to retrieve the information. So you talk a little bit, you have to retrieve the information. Maybe you get it right, maybe you get it wrong. But if you get it wrong, you got to keep doing it until you get it right. Okay, and so you're tested on the information. So now it's not just passively receiving it. You got to pull it back out of your brain and actually put it on the paper. Mm-hmm. Right? You test those people a couple of days later, and what they've retained is X plus. Okay. okay. What's the plus? Going to differ from person to person. But sure. It's more. It's more. Okay, and so uh, that is just a example. Um, but there are other examples about the way you the way you present information. I mean, you you know intuitively that some people are very good at explaining concepts and some people aren't, right? And so take advantage of you know there are certain techniques that you can use in order to explain cons- very complicated topics in uh, in a way that people can absorb more quickly. I can give you one example if we have time, please. All right. So one of the, um, this is a combination of my research, but also my personal opinion, all right? Um, one of the, I think one of the key obstacles to learning anything new, anything new, is definitions. Literally, when you embark on learning any new topic, um, you're almost learning a new language, you know? Mm-hmm. So... You know, if you if you go into the medical field or you go into international inge- tax, international tax or engineering or whatever, yeah, all right, maybe everybody's speaking English, right. but they're using a lot of terms you have never heard of before. Right. And um, in my personal opinion, and I think there is some, you know, there's some research on this as well, is that you know, rather than just diving into the second or third or fourth order of complexity in the topic, one of the first things you have to do is drill on and test on the definitions. Let's make sure everybody understands the definitions, okay? Mm-hmm. So that then when we're talking about those higher level concepts, people aren't sitting there going, well, what does guilty mean? Right. You know, what does that, what, what do you mean? You know, and um, you know, they already know. It's baked in the cake. They, they understand it. And so then that makes more, more complicated topics easier for them to understand and faster for them to learn, okay? Got it. Yeah. yeah, and obviously technology can play a significant role in actually applying that 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 testing, right? And I think you know, hundred percent, we we've seen it a lot, you know, within our organization, yeah. and I know others employ yeah. that as well. And it's and and, and you're right, and yeah. you know, we're, we certainly, I certainly think about it as I think about trying to get information out to our you know, international tax folks. And it, it's actually a good note to remind to remind me that when you test people, they're going to retain more. Yeah. I mean, that's that that is a fact. All right, so so let's turn now to quantitative analysis. And where I wanted to start, John, with you is getting some of your thoughts on 
the historic spreadsheet environment that that we have all that we well again sort of dating ourselves you know well I mean I think when we were at accounting school yeah. it was Lotus one two three but yeah. I mean that was really kind of the beginning <laughs> of the of the the spreadsheet and word perfect word perfect and word perfect <laughs> exactly we're definitely dating ourselves and 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 the spreadsheet environment now that has obviously evolved there are a number of different. Uh, you know companies that 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 do spreadsheets but you know fundamentally that technology hasn't changed a ton right and generally what it requires is a lot of copying and pasting if you're trying to scale it for a number of different fact patterns if you're trying to scale it for a number of different clients if you're in a professional services firm and then any time that you have a, a kind of a cut and paste job there's risk for formula errors you're just introducing more risk into the equation Instead, if you compare that to a centralized rules engine, right, where you know the, the rules sit in one place and you're running data in and having data out, it significantly limits some of those risks. But talk a little bit about from a quantitative analysis perspective, kind of your, your views on kind of spreadsheets and centralized rules engines. Then I would like to get a little bit into some of the technology and so far as you know, what we're seeing and what you believe are kind of the future of our quantitative analysis. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a digression here, but I'll, I'll link it up in a second. So one of the classes that I, uh, I took at school, uh, and I don't think I could have learned this from a book, so I, it, was, it was helpful to have uh, gone back to school, was uh, this data structures class. And data structures covers a lot of different topics, but one of, the, one of the light bulb moments for me in taking that class was that if you get your data structure correctly, me, correct, meaning you store the data that you want to manipulate in the right way, it does a lot of the coding for you. Uh, so in other words, you know, if you give me an XLSX chart or you give me a, an SQL database, you know, I can get you to the end result. I can get you to, you know, the answer that you, you need. It's just going to, it might take 10,000 lines of code as opposed to if I have the appropriate data structure, uh, it might take me 100 lines of code uh, or 50 lines of code. It's it's really that powerful. And so you want to, a lot of times people, especially if they you know don't spend a lot of time with this, the, they kind of just knee-jerk reaction. Well, I was using SQL before, so now I'm going to use SQL later. Or I was using an XLS chart before, I'll use an XLS chart now without necessarily thinking through, well, what is the right tool for the job? And one of the tools in terms of data structures, that's particularly useful for tax. It's useful in a lot of other endeavors as well, but is the notion of a, a graph data structure. And um, the reason that it's so powerful is because it stores the information. The easiest way I can describe it without diagramming something is that it stores the information in the same way that we think about the information for tax purposes. So if you think about a graph as just a series of nodes and edges, essentially that's what a graph is, right? Mm -hmm. It's nodes and edges, right? And you can think of those nodes as entities in your org chart. They could be individuals, they could be corporations, they could be uh, trusts, whatever. It's, 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 it's some sort of entity that, that has a tax significance. And then there are edges between them which means that there are relationships between them, right? Uh, uh, and uh, that's kind of how we think about things. That's why we always, as tax attorneys, you know, we're always obsessed with creating all these PowerPoint diagrams with all the Egyptian hieroglyphics on them, right? right? That no one else understands, right? Well, yeah, you're comparing it to like those the legal structures yeah. that, that we see, the corporate legal structures right. and the big org charts as we right. It doesn't have to, to be as. limited to that. It doesn't right. have to be limited to that. Um, you can hang calculations off that as well, but 
but uh, uh, but I mean that's how we think about things right. from a tax perspective. Well, you can't take those org charts from you know PowerPoint or whatever you're using and give it to the computer, right? The computer needs a data structure, and the you know the best data structure you know out there I think is you know a graph data structure. The other advantage is that a lot of uh, you know tried and true algorithms that have been you know developed 50, 60 years ago. Dijkstra's algorithm, Kruskal's algorithm, Prim's algorithm, you know, you can list 80 different algorithms. I mean, they they work just as well for air traffic control and computer networking as they do for tax. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you want to, you, you've got a, a 2,000 uh, or 5,000 node chart and you need to, you know, find like, you know, certain information within that chart um, and, the you know, it would take a human a week or more uh, to navigate all the way through that that graph. Well, there's a hundred different algorithms you can use to navigate through that graph, and the computer can do it in milliseconds and find you, you know, the the most optimal path within that graph if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I think part of this, John, is is a major change management kind yeah. of exercise for for the industry. And as I mentioned, in, in the traditional spreadsheet environment, again, each spreadsheet is is its own thing, right? Yeah. And you end up having to copy and paste yeah. to the extent that you want to do a new scenario, if yeah. you want to use it for a different client or, yeah. or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be, as opposed to the way I refer to this is the, is the centralized rules engine. And then you're advocating, obviously, the, the use of, of graph to, to, to help you know, to, to actually design that that database and, and those that, that rules engine. Well, and if, and it, you know this is a big if, but if 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 they call it a schema, all right, it's just this isn't my word. This okay. is just the word that they so back to our definition. Back to your yeah, definition sorry, point. schema. Okay. So what is a schema? A schema is kind of like how your graph is organized. If 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 you have a standard schema, now every single client is going to be totally different. But if if you can develop a standard schema and get all client information in that standard schema. You know, in a standard way, because it's got to be. If you want to automate it, it's going to have to be standardized, yep. right? So, uh, otherwise, you're writing bespoke code for every single person. And you're not accomplishing anything, right? But there's but no scale there. There's no scale there. Uh, there's anti-scale there. So, so, um, you know, you if if you can get a standard schema and you can get all the uh, client information uh, fed into that schema, well. Those those algorithms are all completely scalable. They're they're agnostic as to whether you're talking about a thousand node graph or eight thousand node graph or a twenty thousand node. It doesn't matter, right? right. And the okay, it takes another five milliseconds in order to navigate through the graph mm -hmm. instead. You know, what I mean, so I mean that's where you get your true benefits of scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are tremendous opportunities, you know, with that specifically related to uh, quantitative services. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and the other thing in the spreadsheet environment is just the calculations to your where we started this are so interdependent and so complicated that, you know, for those of us that have worked in spreadsheets, you know, you end up with the, the circular calculations. Well, what we've de de determined as part of the TCAJ, well, some of the actual rules are actually circular. circular yeah, like it's just like you can't work around that. Like that's yeah. the rules, and then so you have, and and so that's just one example. Of coding how, can't fix that. Yeah, coding, <laughs> exactly. Coding yeah. can't fix that, but. The you know I, I do think that as as I kind of look look into the future of the industry, kind of moving away from that, and and it's, I don't think things are going to get any less complex, whether it's in the U.S. or outside, as we talked about. And so, 
you know, the change management that's involved, you know, both as we think about, you know, our firm and just in the industry in general, I think is, is a big challenge, but that's a challenge anytime we talk about big technology changes. But I really do see a major change in how we do our quantitative work which also kind of begs the the question of well who's supposed to do that you know should we are we just hiring accountants and lawyers do we more, need more technologists obviously the answer is yes we brought you on board amongst others but you know there yeah, I a, might be biased there right you're you're probably okay, biased yeah, right. but but you know there's just it's it's really a change to how we structure our teams and, and not just within the professional services firms but also our, our clients thinking about how they actually manage all this complex compliance and and modeling you know one other um aspect of graphs that uh, I failed to mention is that, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you, you were alluding to the spreadsheet environment, uh, another issue with spreadsheets, it's, it's just sometimes it's very, you know, when you get into very complex stuff, it's sometimes very difficult for anyone to visualize what's going on. I right. mean, there's just rows and columns and, you know, that doesn't really tell you, uh, Everything. I mean, you can go into the cells and you can try and figure out what cells are referenced, right. and they'll highlight it for you, maybe. And um, you know, you can get some sense from that. But uh, you know, there's not really a fantastic visualization tool that I'm aware of that would you know really show you a picture and how everything interrelates. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas with most graph instant, you know, examples that are out there, and there are a variety of them, uh, you know, you can visualize. You can say, all right, I want to see. I want to see everything that's feeding into this particular calculation and then you'll see you know nodes and edges and so forth and um you know some people like that some people don't maybe you view it as valuable maybe you don't but 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 at least it's an option that's available to you uh, i think most of us do i mean yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing obviously yeah. but you know a lot of us are visual learners even yeah. though we're necessarily math we're, we're math yeah. oriented and, yeah. and accounts which is why i think people yeah. like the org charts it's just yeah. like well let's let's see the org chart let's see how you know from a legal relationship yeah. these these exist and we're all very familiar with thinking about that as international tax you know professionals and so I'm with you on the visualization. And I, I also think that helps with respect to review. So as I think more of our like senior leadership within an organization, you know, as if you're a VP or a tax director, are you gonna spend time kind of going through all of the cells in a spreadsheet environment? And instead, you know, being able to look at, you know, within a, a graph database and how those relationships work and to understand the interconnectivity, it, it really is just a fundamentally different way to, to kind of review and see how, how those relate, what those relationships are and, and how they interrelate and, and potentially impact your taxable income. Yeah. Pictures worth a thousand words, right? right? And that's the... Exactly. So, all right. So let's move to our last topic here. And this is something that I'm, I'm very fascinated with and uh, oh which boy. is a, a <laughs> qualitative analysis. Okay. So, you know, John, I've got a, a theory. Um, I'm not even sure it's really a theory that, that, you know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing as tax professionals is assessing probability analysis, mm -hmm. right? Fundamentally, a tax yeah. opinion that tax professionals provide or, you know, even those within industry that are having to make decisions, right? Fundamentally, when we're giving tax advice, it's really, it's a probability analysis. What do we think is the likelihood that we'll win this go to court? Should, more likely than not, whatever, whatever the case may be. Well, you know, computers are certainly significantly better at doing probability analysis than, than humans. And so as I think about the future of international tax, is there a world where we could ultimately program all of the cases, all of the regulations and statutes and administrative authorities that have been issued 
to to put ourselves in a position where a computer, where, you know, through artificial intelligence and machine learning, can do a probability analysis that that we currently do as tax advisors. Yeah. And and how potentially could machine learning and computers help not just with the quantitative analysis, which we're all over, and you know, using graph and and elsewhere and other tools. But like, how could this apply to the qualitative type of analysis that we do? What's your views on the future of, of that? Sure. So a couple of, there's a lot there. There's a lot uh, there. There's a lot there. So um, first of all, there are companies out there, startups that are engaging. I think the, if you want to Google it, the, you know, without mentioning company names, but if you want to Google the topic, uh, Google like predictive law software, mm-hmm. right? So there are companies out there who are using a combination of convolutional neural nets, which maybe we can talk about on another podcast because that's a long topic, uh, and natural language processing. They're using that together to, you know, first of all, it it only applies, it only works um, if, and this is not a small thing, but but just understand when it works and when it doesn't. It's only going to work if you have an incredibly large data set. So you have to be talking about a topic. So like you're talking about like, you know, making predictions well, you have to have a topic where there are a lot of cases to read. Otherwise, the computer isn't really going to help you. So um, assume that there's one case out there. No convolutional neural net is going to help you make any prediction based on that case um, because there's one. All right. Um, and that's another reason why I wanted to go back you know, to school, because you, you don't have to. You know, you, you don't have to understand the math in order to run a convolutional neural net. They're available. They're open source. I can point you to them. You can download them. You can run them yourself. If you're somewhat tech savvy, you can run a convolutional neural net on your own. Really good ones. Really good ones. Okay. But probably more than somewhat tech savvy. You got to be pretty tech savvy. But, but keep, it's keep shocking. Going. It's shocking how much is available for free online. Right. Sure. And, and, uh, but if you don't understand the math and you don't understand what the computer is actually doing, you, 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 you know, you might get a little bit um, uh, starry-eyed about, you know, what it can do and you're not as focused as maybe you should be on what it can't do, okay? So, um, you know, this predictive law software, which is, which is uh, you know, again, not, not a small thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a tool. It is a tool. Uh, but it's not a tool that replaces human cognition. And, and I don't, uh, I don't think in my lifetime, they are going to replace human cognition primarily because they don't understand human cognition. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, in, in, unless neuroscientists can figure out how our brains work, uh, it's going to be pretty hard for a computer scientist to mimic how our brains work. Okay. Right. And so, um, you know, as we think about opinions, particularly yeah. because the problem, the, the challenge, right, fundamentally is that the facts are never going to be exactly the same, right? Mm-hmm. It's that human cognition, that yeah. judgment that's required to say, well, yeah. these facts are similar. This yeah. is what differentiates yeah. that, and it just does seem like a, a an uphill battle to to be able to replace, right, that judgment, that cognition that's needed to to compare facts or to be able to differentiate. Now, I'm sure that some of that can be done with machine learning, but I am pleased to hear that you don't think that the entire profession is going to be replaced by computers or robots, at least during our, uh, Not during our lifetime, during my lifetime. I mean, you know, there's this joke in the computer science community that, uh, machine learning is the name that we give to stuff we haven't figured out how to make work yet. 
Correct. Okay. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, like, you know, when you're working on your word processor and they do autocomplete for you, that is machine learning. Sure. We, don't, we don't call it machine learning because it works. Right. It works pretty much all the time. Right. right? And so, <laughs> you know, there's the, you know, but there's this whole raft of, uh, you know, opportunities for machine learning. I, I, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize them. I think they're, they're sure. awesome. Right. But I think as a as a as a company that's thinking about what tools they should use, you should think about machine learning as just that a tool, a mm -hmm. specific tool for a specific job. You know, there's a lot of different types of machine learning algorithms out there. Figure out the right tool for the right narrow task, and then apply it. And I think you're going to be very happy when you try to uh, apply machine learning writ large to a huge problem like you know. Replacing what we do, I think you're going to spend a lot of money and be very unhappy, you know, right? Because it just ain't going to work, you know. Well, I think John, that's a perfect place to to end things. And so this has been a fascinating discussion. I already look forward to our our next podcast in our series, learning more about the about your career choices sure. and then ultimately this uh, computer engineering. And then there'll be a special podcast on your Afghanistan experience, sure. yeah. which is which is fascinating. So thank you very much for for joining today. Thanks for having me. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, John McDonald, a managing director in our quantitative solutions and technologies practice, novelist, and retired international tax attorney. I already look forward to our next podcast. So I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.